Hello, and welcome back to the QUB GP Society podcast series, entitled Common Conditions in General Practice. Thanks to all of you who have subscribed to our series. If you haven't already done so, why not hit the subscribe button now? If you've been enjoying our recent episodes, perhaps you might also leave us a review to help us further increase our reach among medical students. As always, if you would like to get in touch with the Society, or you have any ideas or suggestions for the podcast, don't be afraid to get in touch with us via social media or by email gp-soc at qub.ac.uk. But now, on to today's episode. My name is Davog McCaffrey, and I am the president of the Queen's University Belfast GP Society. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast episode, which will be on metabolic bone disease. We will be discussing three main types of bone disease, osteoporosis, osteomalacia, and Paget's disease. We will begin with osteoporosis, which refers to a reduction in the bone mass, but with normal bone mineralization. Bone mass tends to increase during growth, before peaking at around 30 years of age, followed by gradual bone loss. This peak is higher in male and black populations. The main clinical presentation of osteoporosis is low trauma fragility fractures. When we consider the cause of osteoporosis, it is useful to split this into primary and secondary osteoporosis. Primary osteoporosis is often referred to as postmenopausal osteoporosis, whereby there is a relative estrogen deficiency following menopause which causes an increase in bone resorption. In these patients, this is often accompanied by a lack of mobility. This may help to explain why 70% of fractures in women over the age of 45 are due to osteoporosis. Secondary osteoporosis is due to other pathological processes, which can be summarised using the mnemonic Racism. R for rheumatoid arthritis, A for alcohol, C for corticosteroids, I for immobility, S for smoking, and M for multiple myeloma. Osteoporosis tends to be asymptomatic and often only manifests following a low trauma fragility fracture, which means the fracture occurred from a standing height. The most common sites for a fracture of this nature include the distal radius with a collies fracture, the proximal femur, and the dorsal and lumbar vertebra. In terms of investigations for osteoporosis, the first step is to use the FRAX tool to assess high-risk patients. These include women aged over 65, men aged over 75, or patients younger than this who have risk factors, such as a previous fragility fracture, a low BMI, a history of recurring falls, 
long-term corticosteroid use, or rheumatoid arthritis. The FRAX tool is used to give a prediction of the risk of a fragility fracture occurring inside the next 10 years. There are a number of components to a FRAX score, including the age of the patient, their BMI, comorbidities, their smoking and alcohol status, and a family history. The FRAX tool can also consider bone mineral density. This is achieved via a DEXA scan. It is important to consider that up to 30% of bone can be lost before this is seen on a normal x-ray. Therefore, with a DEXA scan, results are measured as a T-score, which expresses the bone mineral density in standard deviations relative to the peak bone mass. A DEXA scan usually focuses on the lumbar or hip regions. The T-score is interpreted using the WHO classification. A T-score of more than minus one standard deviations from the mean indicates normal bone density. A T-score of minus one to minus 2.5 indicates osteopenia, whereas a T-score of less than minus 2.5 standard deviations from the mean is considered to be osteoporosis. Where there is a T-score of less than minus 2.5 plus a fracture, this indicates severe osteoporosis. The results of the FRAX tool will often guide management, which tends to involve treatment or lifestyle advice and reassurance. A bone profile may be carried out and in osteoporosis, plasma calcium, phosphate and alkaline phosphate are all normal. It is important to consider these investigations as they can help to distinguish from other differential diagnoses and other bone diseases which we will come on to shortly. In terms of management of osteoporosis, lifestyle changes may include encouraging exercise and mobility, maintaining a healthy weight, ensuring adequate vitamin D and calcium intake, smoking cessation, reducing alcohol consumption, and avoiding falls. In terms of medical management, in patients at high risk of fragility fractures with an inadequate dietary intake of calcium, NICE recommends calcium supplementation with vitamin D. Bisphosphonates are the first-line treatment for osteoporosis, and they work by interfering with osteoclasts to reduce bone resorption. Common examples of oral bisphosphonates include alendronate and resedronate, which are both taken on a weekly basis. These drugs are poorly absorbed and therefore they must be taken fasting. Reflux esophagitis is a very common side effect which may be lessened if the drug is taken upright with a glass of water. Other side effects include atypical fractures, for example stress or insufficiency fractures of the femoral shaft, 
and osteonecrosis of the jaw or external auditory canal. For those patients who are intolerant of the weekly oral drugs, you may consider zaladronic acid, which may be given as a once-yearly infusion. Other medical options may be considered if bisphosphonates are contraindicated, not tolerated, or not effective. Examples include teraparatide, which is part of the parathyroid hormone molecule, and this is the only drug which actually increases bone mass. It is administered as a daily subcutaneous injection for 18 months to those patients with very severe disease. Denuzumab is a monoclonal antibody biologic therapy that inhibits the maturation of osteoclasts. This is administered as a six-monthly subcutaneous injection. Strontium ranulate is similar to calcium. It inhibits osteoblasts and blocks osteoclasts. You must remember that this drug increases the risk of deep venous thrombosis, pulmonary embolism and myocardial infarction. Raloxifene can be used as secondary prevention. It is a selective estrogen receptor modulator that stimulates estrogen receptors on bones but blocks these receptors in the uterus and breasts. In patients experiencing prolonged amenorrhea and premature menopause under the age of 45, you should consider hormone replacement therapy. HRT should not be used in patients over the age of 50 because of the risk of breast cancer, venous thromboembolism and ischemic heart disease. In patients with renal failure, you may consider calcitonin, which is given as a nasal spray, or rocalterol. It is of paramount importance that these patients are regularly followed up. Low-risk patients engaging in conservative management should be given lifestyle advice and followed up within five years. For patients who are using bisphosphonates, they should have a repeat DEXA scan and a FRAC score recalculation after three to five years. The clinician then may consider a treatment holiday if their bone mineral density has improved and they have not suffered any fragility fractures in the interim period. That concludes our first section on osteoporosis. We will now move to consider osteomalacia, which refers to defective bone mineralization. Osteomalacia is due to absolute or relative vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D is derived mainly from UVB skin exposures, and a lack of vitamin D causes reduction in gut absorption and serum regulation of calcium. Therefore, a very important cause of vitamin D deficiency and subsequently osteomalacia is lack of exposure to sunlight. Patients may also have dietary deficiency or malabsorption of vitamin D and this may follow gastrectomy or be due to inflammatory bile diseases. 
Other less common but often more severe causes of osteomalacia include chronic renal failure and the use of some epileptic anticonvulsant drugs. In terms of clinical features and presentation of osteomalacia, milder osteomalacia is often asymptomatic and may only be discovered on biochemical analysis or x-ray of bones. Other more severe cases may present with generalised bone pain and weakness of proximal muscles. This may lead to a waddling gait and the myopathy may cause an increased risk of falling. In patients with osteomalacia, there may often be a loss of height and bony deformities. There are a range of investigations which may be carried out to diagnose osteomalacia. As previously mentioned, a bone profile is important. In osteomalacia, the calcium and phosphate levels are often low, but may be normal, whereas the alkaline phosphate is moderately raised, and this is because the body is trying to release calcium. Other investigations may include a serum 25-hydroxyvitamin D, which is the laboratory investigation for vitamin D. A level of less than 25 nanomoles per litre is indicative of vitamin D deficiency. It is also useful to check the parathyroid hormone level, as this may be high due to secondary hyperparathyroidism. In osteomalacia, imaging can also be used. X-rays may reveal osteopenia, or more radiolucent bones, whereas a DEXA will often show low bone mineral density. In osteomalacia, a bone biopsy is diagnostic, and will normally show wide osteoid seams. When we consider the management of osteomalacia, Treatment is centred around supplementation of vitamin D, or cholecalciferol. NICE has suggested a number of different regimens. An example of one regimen includes 10 to 20,000 international units of vitamin D daily via ergocalciferol, plus 1 gram of calcium per day. If there should be poor compliance or malabsorption, you may consider a single dose of 600,000 international units of IM calciferol. During treatment, blood calcium should be checked regularly for hypercalcemia. Bone pain and muscle weakness tends to resolve in 4-8 to eight weeks, and at that stage, the dose may be reduced or stopped, providing the blood and x-ray results are normal. However, at least one gram of calcium per day should be continued. In patients who are at high risk of osteomalacia, you may consider prophylaxis, again using calcium and vitamin D3. The third and final metabolic bone disease which we will consider is Paget's disease. Paget's disease is a disorder of bone turnover whereby there is excessive activity of both osteoclasts and osteoblasts. Paget's disease tends to be patchy and localised in its distribution, 
The most commonly infected bones include the lumbar spine, pelvis, femur, tibia, clavicles, skull, and humerus, but it may involve any bones. The prevalence of Paget's disease increases with age and affects approximately 5% of elderly patients. The new bone which is produced is often soft and spongy, meaning that pathological fractures are very common in these patients. The presentation of Paget's disease tends to mimic metastatic bone disease. Clinical features can include bone pain, particularly in the lumbar and pelvic regions, tibial bowing, and other complications such as deafness, sarcomas, and high-output cardiac failure. As in osteoporosis and osteomalacia, it is important to carry out a bone profile. In Paget's disease, calcium and phosphate are normal, but the alkaline phosphate is often very high in active disease. An X-ray may be carried out, which will reveal cortical thickening and a thickened trabecular pattern, which gives a cotton wool appearance. The main treatment for Paget's disease involves the use of bisphosphonates, which interfere with osteoclast activity to help restore normal bone metabolism. Examples of bisphosphonates used include oral resedronate or IV zeladronic acid. Response to treatment tends to be assessed by a reduction in alkaline phosphate and a relief of bone pain. Other measures may include the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for pain, calcium and vitamin D supplementation due to the bisphosphonate treatment, and surgery in some rare cases. In summary, Metabolic bone diseases are often seen by general practitioners in a primary care setting. These conditions tend to affect elderly patients and so are becoming increasingly common in an ageing population. These conditions can often be asymptomatic unless they are very severe, where they may present with specific symptoms or downstream effects such as fragility fractures in osteoporosis. It is often very useful to carry out a bone profile in these patients, as each metabolic bone disease tends to have a particular picture of results. Management of these patients can involve both conservative and medical therapies. That brings us to the end of today's podcast episode on metabolic bone don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on all the latest episodes. You can also leave us a review or tell your friends to help us further increase our reach. If you have any ideas or suggestions for future episodes, why not get in touch via email gp-soc at qub.ac.uk Our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram accounts are regularly updated with all the essential information from our society. Thank you for listening 
and goodbye.